Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, Fitch Ratings Lead Sovereign Analyst for China, and I'm speaking to you from our office in Hong Kong Central District. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Sebastian Eckhart, who is based in Beijing as the World Bank's lead economist and program leader for China, Mongolia, and Korea. Sebastian has a wealth of on-the-ground experience in Asian economies. We first met five to six years ago during his prior post as the World Bank's lead economist for Vietnam, where he was a well-sought-after expert on the Vietnamese economy. Earlier in his career, he also spent some years based in Jakarta. Sebastian, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. With that kind of career trajectory, it should really come as no surprise to see you relocate to Beijing in 2019 and take on your current role covering China's economy. Good to see you, Andrew, and thanks for having me. Hello from uh, Beijing, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. All right, wonderful. Last week, uh, the World Bank issued its biannual China economic update. For listeners unfamiliar with the series, it's an incredibly comprehensive diagnosis of recent economic developments in China, chock full of charts, data, policy recommendations, and special research topics as well. Maybe just to set the stage, uh, could you share with us the World Bank's top-down view of the world as of mid-2021? Where are we in the current global economic recovery at this moment? What's going well and, and what's missing? So as far as the global recovery is concerned, we also just launched last month our global economic prospects, which looks at the recovery of the global economy. And we upgraded our forecast for global GDP growth to 5.6%. Uh, this year much stronger than initially expected and a fairly sharp recovery from the minus 3.5 contraction last year. Now, um, we do still see that the recovery, while stronger than expected, remains uneven across countries and within countries across different segments of the economy. Uh, While many of the advanced economies um, are posting uh, growth at the levels that they experienced before, and in some cases at higher levels than what they experienced before the COVID pandemic unfolded, In the emerging economies and and especially low-income economies, there's still a more protracted uh, recovery path. Much of that has to do with the fact that there's uneven access to vaccinations. So there's still concerns in terms of, you know, the the soundness of the recovery, and especially in low-income and emerging markets. Okay, well, thanks for that introduction. I guess in your mind, where does the Chinese economy fit into this broader global picture? So if we look at China, I think in our view, the recovery broadly remains on track. Uh, We do see that, of course, year-on-year growth in the first quarter has been off the chart. Not surprisingly, a lot of this has to do with strong base effects. Uh, Encouragingly, we do see that the recovery uh, has broadened. Initially, last year, the recovery was led by public investment supported by significant stimulus measures that the authorities put in place, as well as, you know, benefiting from relatively robust global demand, especially for some, you know, medical goods, strong uptick in in demand for electronics. So we saw that that a lot of the initial recovery phase was driven basically by a combination of public investment and, and net exports. Now we do see that the started towards the end of last year and carried forward this year, we do see that consumption and private investment have been trending back to pre-COVID levels, sort of a gradual rotation towards more private domestic demand-driven growth. 
However, that rotation remains incomplete. We do see that you know, high-frequency data suggests that overall the momentum of the recovery is somewhat slowing. And then also for you know, high-frequency indicators such as retail sales, you know, manufacturing investment and so on, we do see that there are continued headwinds and that private consumption and private investment remain below pre-COVID levels. So there's still some way to go to really solidify the recovery of domestic private demand here in China. Okay, so we're progressing along in your view, but still not quite there, particularly on private consumption, it sounds like. Maybe just to get maybe not too wonky in this podcast, but one, I guess, data-specific question that I, uh, I'm keen to ask is that you mentioned yourself that the year-on-year growth rates, not only for GDP, but pretty much all of the important macroeconomic accounts in China are just off the charts at the moment. I guess, because of the base effect. So how are you guys at the World Bank going about approaching this problem, in particular in your assessment of of where activity is at the moment? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. And I think everyone is is grappling with this, not just here in China, but I think the same applies for for many other economies, just the nature of the recovery, which ended up being a little bit reshaped, more reshaped than we had had perhaps uh, expected initially. And it's, of course, good news. Now, in terms of how to interpret the data, we did essentially a combination of things. One is we looked at the two-year, basically taking 2019, if you will, as the reference year, the pre-COVID year, to basically correct for the base effects that affect the the year-on-year growth rates. We also looking at various seasonally adjusted uh, sequential growth theories and other sequential data that basically looks at at the dynamics from um, quarter to quarter or month to month in some cases perspective. And of course, that tells a different story and that actually shows that despite the fairly strong year-on-year growth rates, you do see that the recovery remains incomplete overall. And then, of course, in particular with regard to consumption and private investment, and then also we see sequentially that, uh, you know, especially in the first two months of the year, there was a, was a bit of a soft patch. And we also see, the, frankly, the last two months, sequential high activity data doesn't look as strong as the year-on-year numbers would suggest initially. So I think we're looking at this from a number of angles to just calibrate our perspectives and make sure we, we tell a nuanced story about how far we, along we are in terms of recovering from the initial shock. No, that, that's interesting to uh, to think about the the 2019 as a base year for year-on-year growth rates, and and I do take your point about some of the seasonally adjusted figures. I guess you do get quite a bit of volatility there as well, though, because of that. You know, there was an outbreak in January, February, of COVID infections in China, and I guess that made those months a bit softer on a sequential basis. But um, perhaps those are some volatility in the the data that you want to be seeing. Yeah, I agree. So I think it's important to, especially in this context where the economy is still in a recovery phase, I think it is important to be careful not to overinterpret individual data readings, but to really look systematically at all the pieces of evidence and stitch together a good assessment. And also, I think clearly uncertainty has dissipated compared to last year, but I think compared to the usual steady state, I think uncertainty levels are still high. We now see also, you know, the, the, these new variants emerging and posing new new potential risks to the pandemic trajectory. And, and of course, in that context, I think it's important to look at data quite carefully and to be apply the, you know, prudence and not to overread individual monthly readings of any particular data series as reflecting an underlying trend. So if you look at our report, actually, 
we overall think that the recovery, as I mentioned at the outset, we think that the underlying trend is still intact and that we do see that the economy continues to recover. We do see that these previously lagging parts on the demand side, consumption and private investment on the supply side, the services sectors are also gradually recovering much more slowly than other parts of the economy. But we think that these underlying trends are, remain intact. And therefore, we also, in fact, uh, upgraded our full year growth forecast to 8.5% for this year. So, so overall, I think we see some short term, near term risks and, and headwinds. But we also think that in the long run, medium run, the recovery re- remains very much intact. Okay. Well, thanks for that. I think in our latest update, we have 8.4 for this year. So we're really quite close to one another in these forecasts for 2021. One fascinating piece of analysis that I saw featured in your latest economic update for China, which frankly, I don't think I've seen anywhere else, uh, was a diagnosis of the relative carbon intensity of China's pandemic recovery. What were your key findings there in that analysis? So this is, I think, actually quite interesting because the initial drivers of the recovery on public investment and export demand and hence very strong overshooting of industrial production. We see that after, you know, of course, the first quarter lockdown resulted in a significant reduction of emissions growth. Remainder of last year, carbon emissions actually increased quite steeply uh, following basically the strong rebound in industrial production. And as a result, the long-term trend that we see in terms of China's reduction in carbon intensity, kind of there was a break in that trend last year where you see that the decline in carbon intensity last year was much less than in the 10 years preceding COVID. So there was, a, in our view, likely temporary reversion in an underlying trend in terms of reducing China's carbon emissions, reflecting that basically the carbon intensive sectors have recovered much faster, industrial production, construction activity and such. On the other hand, the low carbon activities in the service sectors primarily have recovered much more slowly. And that's then reflected in the pattern we're observing in terms of both overall carbon emissions growth, but then also importantly, in a sort of reversion in the trends, decline in carbon intensity of China's economy. Yeah, I guess intuitively, that makes perfect sense that if your countercyclical policy to address the economic spillovers over the pandemic is infrastructure investment, that it's going to be relatively carbon in- intensive. But kudos for uh, putting together the data analysis to support that sort of intuitive insight. Um, I imagine it must have been quite a bit of work to do so. And that's true. Maybe one aspect that I think is important is, in a sense, largely this is a reflection of the underlying recovery pattern. But on the other hand, there's other analysts that have looked at the greenness of, of China's stimulus measures. China's stimulus measures largely relied on very traditional infrastructure investment as opposed to actually invest in a low-carbon future. So in a sense, like in other countries, I think the recovery stimulus presented in in principle an opportunity to have a greener recovery, but uh, that's not what we've been seeing in China. Though I suppose, as you say, as services and consumption pick up, I guess it'll prove to be more of a reversion to, to trend in that regard. Yeah, certainly. I think we expect this to be a temporary offset. And in fact, if we look at, at this year, we're already seeing that happening uh, very much so. Okay, well, thanks. Uh, now that we have your diagnosis of, of where China is in the economic recovery process, I guess one natural follow-up question for you would be, 
what in your assessment is happening uh, to economic policy settings and maybe more broadly how these compare with the World Bank's general policy recommendations at this stage to China and other countries as they try to battle their way out of the pandemic? So I think if we look at macro policies in China, I think our expectations are very much aligned with market expectations that there will be a, a gradual tightening and normalization of both monetary and fiscal policies. If we look at monetary policies, I think uh, the PBOC has maintained, I would say, has moved towards neutral policy settings, as I think the way we describe it in the report. We see that there is still effort to, to maintain sufficient liquidity policy rates where you know, allowed to gradually increase, but not by much. I think overall monetary policy settings remain supportive, but gradually tightening. And you see that in the credit cycle that, of course, after rapid expected uh, uptick in credit growth last year, it's, it's kind of normalizing. I think that's in line with the policy statements that also emphasize that there will be no sharp turns in policy, but a, a gradual, I think, data-dependent normalization of the policy stance. Similarly, on fiscal, we saw that the you know the budget targets for this year left some space. There was a you know the targets suggest a, a very modest, relatively modest adjustment and consolidation of the fiscal position this year. So there's space. But then if we look at the actuals, it actually suggests that fiscal support to the economy was significantly below last year and below even the, the budget targets that were set for the year. Now, some of that might be that there was a lot of front-loading of support last year, and then maybe this year we are going back to more usual pattern of rather backloaded fiscal spending. So part of it might still be down the pike and come next year, but it may also suggest that the authorities are taking advantage of a firming recovery to basically tighten fiscal accounts and rebuild some space in case they need it later on. I think in terms of your the second part of your question, how this is aligned with what we would recommend, I think we are pretty much aligned. So we think that there should be a data-dependent normalization. I think uh, both calibrated to the pace of the recovery here in China, especially of domestic demand, as well as to the pace of the recovery elsewhere. So if risks on the downside materialize, I think then having that fiscal space and using it uh, is probably a good hedge to uh, ensure against potential you know, uh, drags on growth if they materialize. It's actually quite interesting what you what you say here about fiscal policy, because I guess it suggests that even though the trajectory of consolidation is probably a bit slower than you were previously expecting, and frankly, we at Fitch were previously expecting six months ago, if I understood you correctly, you know, one hypothesis is that they're just trying to leave themselves room in case downside risk materialize. Is that a, a fair summary? Yeah, I think that would interpret it in that way. The fiscal targets clearly provide room for more if necessary, but I think they are also, the authorities are reluctant to use their ammunition if it's not necessary, given that debt levels, if not on the fiscal side, but overall debt levels, of course, in China remain high and their potential demands on fiscal space, not just of a cyclical nature with downside risks in the short run, but also longer term issues around, you know, structural reforms, aging and so on. So I think using f available fiscal space prudently is good policy in our view, but then also also, at the same time, I would stress that in case downside risks materialize, of course, then it's also good to deploy available fiscal space. And we certainly think that at the national level, fiscal space is principally available to do so if necessary. Okay. Maybe just to clarify quickly to the audience, I think we're mostly comparing apples to apples, but you at the World Bank use a, a consolidated fiscal balance for China, as, as do we at, at Fitch. And I guess the NPC 
if you make the facto consolidations, they were presenting a budget around 7.5% GDP deficit. Is that more or less in line with your estimates? That's correct. So I think that if you count in, you know, the headline budget deficit, as well as the local government bonds and sort of uh, other extra budgetary accounts, you end up in the in the neighborhood of like 7.5% for this year. And that compares to 9% actual last year. So clearly, you know, even the targets are suggesting some tightening, but at the same time, it's it's fairly modest. And again, it shows that if, if necessary, additional stimulus and support could be deployed. Well, thanks for that. Maybe just to pivot slightly to your earlier points about monetary policy and the gradual path towards a, a more neutral policy setting there. These days in the markets, a lot of folks are talking about inflation risks, uh, particularly in the United States, and the possibility that this could lead the Fed to raise interest rates much earlier than previously expected. There is a little bit of a parallel going on in China. I think we've all been following the, the sharp spike in producer price inflation in recent months. Some investors are questioning whether this might have impl- in implications for CPI and maybe even the policy outlook. So what is your latest take on this debate in China? So I think clearly if we look globally, actual inflation has risen. And of course, we see markets reacting to that. Now for China, we also saw an uptick in producer prices. Again, much of that is a reflection of the sort of industrial production-led recovery that was quite commodity intensive, and that has put some pressures on commodity prices. And in a way, uh, we know that the producer prices in China are very sensitive to commodity price swings. So that's is clear that there has been a turning point on producer prices. Now, this is coming after a long spell of deflationary concerns around producer prices in, in, in China over much of last year, but even predating COVID. So in many ways, this reflation trend is welcome to some extent, unless it, it really persists. And we see already that uh, more recent data suggests that actually we're already past the peak, peak inflation. Hopefully that will turn out to be the case. Um, now, we are less concerned on consumer price uh, side. We know historically that pe- producer price inflation pass through to consumer prices in China is relatively limited. So a lot of the increased input costs are absorbed by producers because the markets are quite competitive and, and the ability to pass on cost increases is limited. We also don't see a side of commodity prices. We do not see signs of excessive wage, broader cost push inflation. You know, wages seem to be growing basically more or less in line with nominal GDP, not excessive, despite the fact that labor markets have recovered quite robustly from last year's slump. And therefore, we are less concerned that is a risk of of consumer price inflation. On top of that, you have sort of a deep deflation cycle on pork prices, which after last year's wine fever, uh, which also weighs on headline inflation. And you have still sluggish consumer demand, which also Uh, limits, contains risks uh, associated with a potential uh, demand pull type of inflation scenario. So for China, for now, based on the data and what we are seeing, we are less concerned about inflation risks. Okay, so so at the risk of sounding a bit flippant, essentially, at the moment, you view this as as a non-issue in China's case. Yeah, pretty much. And we think that even the producer price inflation is is likely a transient trend and not something that that will likely persist and translate into broader price pressures. That's our assessment for now. With the time we have left, I thought it might be helpful to take a step back and talk about a few medium-term economic challenges and 
perhaps World Bank's recommendations on how to address them. The first huge topic uh, in China's case, not only for China, but everywhere else as well these days, is income inequality. With so much wealth creation that has taken place in China in recent decades, this has indeed become an increasingly important policy challenge for the authorities. What reforms in your mind would help China address rising income inequality and make growth more inclusive? Yeah, I think this is an important question. And it's, it's of course, a challenge that is not unique to China. It's a challenge that predates COVID. But like elsewhere, there are concerns about the initial impact of COVID and then also the recovery Uh, potentially exacerbating inequality, pre-existing inequality that is quite high in China. Now, in terms of the policy options, I think, that are available, we suggest that there are essentially three three buckets of things that could help. And they are all variants of structural reforms in the fiscal sector. The first one is intergovernmental fiscal relations are quite fundamental to this question because when, as far as public services are concerned, and this is, you know, education, health, but also social safety nets, China's fiscal system is, is quite decentralized. And because of differences in economic performance and, and income levels across China's provinces and within provinces between rural and, and urban areas, there are huge differences in essentially fiscal capacity and spending resources that are being devoted to providing public services. Now, if you would reform the fiscal system to basically provide more equalization, and in many ways the authorities in the last few years have gone in that direction already, that could help reduce not so much income inequality directly, but it could reduce inequality and in access to public services. And that, in, in a way, lays the foundation for more equitable outcomes in terms of income distribution, because obviously if you have good education, uh, access and so on, that, that determines your lifetime ability to earn incomes. The second part also on the fiscal side is, of course, China's tax system is relatively regressive, partly because it relies heavily on consumption taxes, VAT, for most part. And of course, consumption taxes, while very efficient, they do tend to be regressive relative to income. So there's, unlike in high-income settings, and of course China is now in the next few years expected to reach into high-income status, unlike in the high-income countries, China's tax system could be used more effectively to basically also contribute to improved and more equitable income distribution uh, with the introduction of or the broadening of a progressive income taxation and changes, for example, also to social security contribution systems and so on, which also have features that make them less progressive, in some cases even regressive than elsewhere. And the third part is really social safety nets. So I think China, this has been on the agenda for a long time, and I think COVID in many ways illustrated that this is a potential gap in terms of providing efficient and equitable uh, social insurance against all types of shocks. As China's economy becomes more complex, uh, more dynamic, of course, those risks will become more pronounced. And I think there is evidence from, again, OECD countries that having a nationally funded, national and robust social safety net is good social policy because it reduces inequalities, but it's also good economic policy because it allows people to take risks. Uh, It would likely support more consumer spending because households would 
have less of a need to set aside their own savings to protect against these shocks, and therefore would actually help China achieve its, its objective, uh, you know, of dual circulation and a greater reliance on on domestic consumption as a not just as a cyclical recovery driver, but as a structural driver of long-term growth. That's actually exactly uh, one of the follow-up questions I was going to ask, which is we've been talking for years about the authorities' goals of achieving this uh, rebalancing towards consumption in China more sustainably. I guess the pandemic was a little bit of a step back in that regard, uh, you know, given the counter-cyclical policies that were taken. But in recent years, ultimately, there has been quite a remarkable pivot towards consumption. Are these three reforms that you identified, do you think they would be important steps forward in ensuring that that happens on a sustainable basis? I would say so. I mean, in many ways, there are other if you will, structural drivers or secular drivers that should help support that rebalancing towards more consumption growth, income growth, demographic changes, and so on that should all support. But I think with a with a policy mix, including some of the, the points I mentioned earlier, this could be accelerated and potentially reinforced this trend towards stronger domestic consumption in China. Now, we know that if we compare consumption levels in China to other countries at its level of income, it still remains much lower than we see elsewhere. And the household savings rates are still exceptionally high in China. And of course, that's in many ways, uh, my view, it's an opportunity. So if the economy is going in that direction, and I think with a policy mix that would support it, I think it will likely be more sustainable and possibly also happen at a faster clip than without the right policy supporting it. I guess we pivot towards another sort of medium-term policy challenge that you identified quite clearly in your report. One of these topics is these long-standing distortions in the financial system. At Fitch, we've been writing about this for years, frankly, the sort of rise in economy-wide debt levels that have happened essentially since the global financial crisis, and also the prevalence of implicit guarantees for government-related entities. I guess this is obviously a very delicate issue because on the one hand, the authorities want to pursue reforms to address some of these issues. But if you move too quickly or too abruptly, you could spook the markets and end up creating crisis of your own making. Maybe a policy recommendation perspective. How does the World Bank assess these potential risks today? And what are the kind of reforms that you think would be most effective in addressing or mitigating these risks? Yeah, I would very much agree with what you said, Andrew, that this is a, yeah, it's a difficult policy challenge to unwind some of these distortions without triggering an abrupt and potentially disruptive repricing of risk and reallocation of resources that could lead to volatility and disruption at a scale that is harmful. So I think this is really not easy. I think what we recommend in the report is basically to focus a lot on exit. So if we look at China's, you know, regulatory environment, especially on the corporate side, there's been a lot of emphasis on easing entry, making it easier to create firms, where we see still a lot of room and need for improved regulatory environment is is on the exit side. You basically, you need to allow unviable firms to exit the market in an efficient and in an orderly manner, in a way that protects uh, creditors, that balances the rights of creditors with the need for quick and efficient resolution of insolvency cases on the corporate side. And similarly, we think 
It's also true for the banking system where, you know, a banking resolution framework, there's been steps, of course, to do this, as have been on the been steps on the corporate side as well with the insolvency law and so on. But I think we, in many ways, this is now the time where these frameworks are being tested. And if there is orderly exit and if some of these corporates, you know, are dealt with in an efficient way, I think it will ease some of the concerns on the part of, of markets that there's rising risks and so on in, with regard to some of the heavily leveraged corporates. Generally, we feel that it's good to communicate to markets that there is no implicit guarantee, even for some of the state-owned enterprises. Generally, we think that if firms are unviable, those firms, they, they should exit. And of course, it also is, it involves that investors that are exposed, they basically assume some of the risks associated with their initial investments. I think that's important to deal with these, with the deleveraging agenda, but it's also important because it, it ultimately affects incentives and it mitigates risks of moral hazard and, and misallocation of capital, because it will ultimately allow more rational pricing of risks and improve the allocation and efficiency of financial resource allocation. Okay, well, thanks, Sebastian. Before you go, I would be remiss uh, not to ask you about a topic that World Bank is the world authority on, which is poverty alleviation. Uh, this is featured as a, a special topic in, in your latest economic update report on China. I found some of the charts and data quite fascinating. You know, China indeed has a very impressive record of poverty alleviation in recent decades. And you uh, go through some of the methods and, and policies that they've taken in order to achieve those goals. Uh, but what I really wanted to ask you about was the chapter's headline, which I'm going to read for everybody uh, as follows. Extreme poverty has been eliminated. What comes next? Uh, so my question for you is, what does come next and, and what are your recommendations in this regard for the authorities? Yeah, so this is in many ways, this chapter was motivated by the fact that, that China reached this sentinel goal of eliminating extreme poverty. That is, of course, a remarkable achievement in many ways. It uh, means that at this point, poor population defined as living on less than roughly $2 a day in China is no longer an issue. Now, having said that, we know that this measurement, the specific measurement of, of poverty is relatively narrow. We know that in most, you know, the World Bank's own poverty line for middle income countries is $5.50 instead of $2 per day. And of course, according to that measure, you still have quite a significant number of people living below that poverty line. As we show in the report, the majority of those live actually in urban areas. So it's also a little bit different in the past. This extreme form of poverty was primarily a rural issue. But we now see that in this wider definition, we actually do see that there's still vulnerable populations in, in urban areas. And that requires a different type of approach to mitigate poverty in, in urban areas. Areas. And it, much of that comes back to what we discussed uh, under the question about income inequality. So it's also about robust uh, social safety net, equitable access to, to public services, including for migrant workers and their families who, because of HUKU restrictions at this point, may not have access to public services in urban areas. So I think these are some of the priorities we, we point to. In many ways, China now faces the sort of more middle and high income uh, country challenges when it comes to you know, social inclusion and equity. 
Okay, interesting. Well, Sebastian, thanks so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, and I very much hope that next time uh, international borders and travel will be open so that we can do this in person in your office in Beijing. Uh, likewise, Andrew. Uh, again, thanks for having me. It was great to see you. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, please visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care, and until next time.